Today's video was recorded on January 18th, 2021, and this is part of a series that is exploring the book of Exodus. So in today's video, we're going to look at culture and communication of the ancient Near East. So there are vast differences in culture and communication styles between the East and the West. And since the Bible is an Eastern book, it was written by Easterners to Easterners, we must work to understand the message through that lens rather than demand that the Bible communicate to us through the cultural lens of our modern Western world. Now, this lesson is just an introductory look at how God communicates His will through the culture of the ancient Near East. And when Western Christians begin to explore the Bible through an Eastern lens, they often find that the message is much deeper and richer than they had ever seen before. So we hope you enjoy today's video on culture and communication comparing the ancient Near East to the West. So today is going to be a very little scripture, but lots about culture. And it dawned on me a little bit that this is one of those classes that is almost ought to be taught every time you do a lesson in the Bible, because we forget the vast cultural differences, not only today, East and West, but East and West, and then ancient East. And the way that they communicate is very different, and that can create a lot of confusion. So this is part of Exodus, part two, but what we're going to talk about today is uh, the idea of culture and communication, those two being uh, uh, linked together very closely, and it's complex, so I'm not going to try to sort through it all, but when the Bible communicates to us, it communicates in culture. And as I've mentioned repeatedly, as God communicates His Word, He does it in the culture. Well, 2,000 years later, living in the West, you know, I want to understand what that culture was rather than demand the Bible speak in my culture, or in our culture here in the West. So this is what we'll do today. And I wanted to do a little bit of review. So we're not yet on number one. I want to do a review from last week. So last week, I connected towards the end of, this, of our, the lesson. I connected something in Exodus, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, indwelling in the tabernacle, and we brought that forward and said, now we, the church, after Pentecost, we are the new temple, and, that, and the Spirit dwells in us. That's the importance of community. And then one thing I mentioned was something about Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost. Where were the disciples that day? And that's what I'm going to walk you through, because we had a discussion post-class. So I want to at least point out how you can understand where the disciples were that day. And then it's going to fit, because Luke doesn't give us all the information. Why doesn't he give us all the information? He's an Easterner. He doesn't give you all the information. You figure it out. That's how Easterners communicate. So as we look today, so the story, as, as I go through the review, it's actually going to fit what we're talking about. There's a vast divide between the East and the West, 
when it comes to cultural and communication, particularly the ancient East, um, the West, we are all Westerners. We don't even realize that we take on our culture. We've been conditioned since birth. You don't even know it's there. When you bump into somebody else's culture, we often think that's, some, that's bad or they're wrong. It's like, no, no, they're not wrong. They're just different, right? So in the West, we're low context culture. We like everything right on the surface, very explicit. Uh, communication is, you're not, nobody's weaving anything in between the lines. In the East, it's the exact opposite. So these two, these two are polar opposites. In the East, everything's high context, meaning there's a whole bunch of shared knowledge that the author assumes you have. So when Luke is writing, he doesn't include explicit details of what's happening. He wants you to figure that out. And an Eastern audience says, that's how I like it. I want, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search for this, the, the things underlying. So this is what we're going to deal with today. High context, which is Eastern way of talking, or uh, communicating, I'm sorry. And so Eastern way of communicating. And then I'll show you how in, in this, uh, what we did last week with the Holy Spirit, how we can pull from the text and the context that's going on around it to say, where were those disciples that day on Pentecost? Okay, so this is where we ended up. We ended up at Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. We'll look at it in a minute. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts 2, and I am going to look at one, sentence, one verse in Luke as well. But So Acts chapter 2 is this Pentecost event. It, for us, it's the, it's the Holy Spirit. And we got there because I said, look, one of the main messages that come out of the book of Exodus has to do with the presence of God and where God dwells. The last 15 chapters of the book are all about creating a space for God, and that space is the tabernacle. So 15 chapters, that's a big part of Exodus. When you get to the very end, the last few sentences of Exodus, it says that when Moses finished the tabernacle, the presence of God filled the tabernacle. So God, in a sense, moved in. You create a space for God, in that case, a physical space. The moment you create a space for God, God fills that space with his presence. And this is what we're called to do in our own lives. Create a space for God. Now, whether that's literally a building and a church, or it's the community, or it's just a space in your life, like time that God will fill. So we noted you're creating a space for God and the presence of God moves in. That's his, that's his dwelling space. Then we said this, well, the next time they built a new building for God was Solomon, Solomon's temple. And if you read in 2 Chronicles 7, the moment that Solomon finished the tabernacle and he blessed it, God moved in. It was it actually, it's almost a repeat of Exodus. The priests couldn't enter because of the Holy Spirit. And so you can see, again, big part of what God wants us to do here on earth, create that space for him. Well, in Jesus' day, what was there in Jerusalem? Now, this is a model. This is a model of the temple in Jerusalem. That's the Temple Mount. And then right here in the middle of that Temple Mount is God's house. Hebrew 
house. Not temple, we call it a temple, but it's really God's house. So, in Jesus' day, they were convinced, based on their history, that the presence of God was dwelling in that house. And so, now Acts chapter, or I'm sorry, yeah, Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost event comes up. And suddenly, what we see is God changing his address. He's moving. He doesn't want to live in that building of stone any longer. And his, we see the fire, which is, represents the presence of God, come out of the house or fill the house. The, the fire comes out, and where does it land? On the new temple. The building changed. God still has a temple, so to speak, but now it's a temple of living stones, which means wherever you have a group of people in the world that come together in community to worship God, the presence of God, that's what it's telling us is that, look, the presence of God is everywhere in the world. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience, experience it. You're, you're living stones. And so you get something like this. You get Paul says something like, this in Corinthians, and we have to be careful because we're individualistic society not to read the you as, a, as an individual. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? And the you here and the you here, well, we look at the footnote, are plural. So do you not know that all y'all are, are God's temple and the Spirit dwells in all y'all? That's the key. So Paul understands what took place on that Pentecost event. In fact, he's in, he's in Corinth. Corinth is filled with temples. What would you be asking if you're a Christian? Hey, Paul, where's our, where's our temple to our God? He says, you're it. Come together in community in this little house church, and the, and the presence of God fills our space right here in Corinth. So, okay, that was what we did last week. And I said, well, look, where were the disciples? Well, they're at the temple. Right? We're often taught, now, let me just say, okay, I should say it this way. We're often taught they're in the upper room. That's what most people think. But an Easterner, if you read it, in, if, uh, through Eastern eyes, will say, no, they weren't. They're at the temple. They're at God's house. Because it's Pentecost. This is the fourth holiday on the list of holidays. It's one of the three holidays where every Jew is commanded to go to Jerusalem. Jesus tells them, Go to Jerusalem. I'm sending something. And, it, and so what I want to show you is there's an underlying context going on that Luke never explains. But if we all knew the context, we would say, I see what's happening. And the context, well, okay, let me show you this. So Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, where are the disciples? So last week, uh, we had that little bit of discussion about where they were. And I said, well, look, the last sentence of Luke, and I'll pull it up here, the last sen sentence of Luke, and Luke wrote the book of Acts, says this, it's Luke 24, 53, and they continually, they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So where were the disciples during the 10 days? Because the context of this sentence in Luke is Jesus is resurrected, he's walking around, he's about to ascend, and he tells them, stay in Jerusalem. He ascends, and the last sentence says, and they stayed at the temple praising God. So they weren't hiding away in the house or in the uh, upper room. They're at the temple. That's what Luke tells us. Luke wrote Acts, so let's go to the beginning of Acts. By the way, 
we also know how long, how many days were they continually at the temple praising God? Ten days. Now, how do we know that? Well, because it's the, it's the underlying context. Now, Luke, or I'm sorry, Acts 1, verse 3. This is now the beginning of the second part of Luke's writing. And he says, After Jesus suffered, he presented himself and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Okay? Now that is all underlying context, right? And what's the context? What's, the, what's going on here? What's the holiday of Pentecost? That's what we need to know. It's the holiday context. So Pentecost, it's the fourth in the list, and the word Pentecost means 50 days. So if Jesus walked around for 40, and on the 50th day the Holy Spirit shows up, how many days were the disciples at the temple? Ten days. Luke never tells us that. That's all the context of what's going on. Okay? So what we would do is we'd have, to, we'd have to know the progression of holidays. Now, we've done enough in this class on the holidays that you're at least aware, most people are, uh, in this class anyways, of the progression of holidays. But it starts with the Passover, and we'll see that in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover is this huge event where God is going to deliver his people if you're covered in the blood of the Lamb you get delivered. So we have to know the holiday progression. So it very quickly goes like this. You have Passover is the first holiday. That starts, you have the Passover sacrifice. And this is what's in, then Exodus is going to lead them out. They don't have time to, uh, put, to, to allow their bread to rise. So the very next holiday is called unleavened bread. And then the very next holiday, and these are usually within a couple days of each other, is called the first fruits. And what happens on the first fruits is you begin to count down. God says, I want you to count seven weeks. Seven weeks is 49 days. And on the 50th day, have the next holiday. So how do you say 50 days in Greek? Pentecost. Okay. So what's Jesus doing? Well, we know all of the Gospels tell us that it's Passover time when Jesus is put on the cross. He is God's Passover lamb. He does the same thing as the first Passover lamb. His, if you're covered in his blood, you're delivered from death. So Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's buried as the unleavened bread. Leaven is sin, so he's unleavened. Then he's raised on the holiday of first fruits. Paul says Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and the Holy Spirit are all in the context of under, the underlying context of the holiday system. So Jesus resurrects on first fruits. Well, you start counting down. He's with them for 40 days. He ascends to, have, or to heaven. How many days later is Pentecost? Ten days. So this is a big deal. This holiday is a big deal. And the whole reason I wanted to go through this was, one, just to show you, why would I say something like the disciples were probably at, that, at the God's house, the temple, 
because it's all high-context communication. Luke doesn't tell you it explicitly. We have to know something to understand what's going on. Okay, so now let's last place to turn, because here's what the text actually says. Uh, during the time that Jesus is resurrected, you don't hear of it. There's nothing about any persecution yet. That comes later. So, Acts chapter 2, it starts like this. When the day of Pentecost came, now that's that major holiday, right? Everybody goes to the temple on the, on, on the day of Pentecost. Then it says they were all together in one place. It doesn't even say place. They were all together as one. Where? Doesn't say. So we have to know the context. Ah, Pentecost, they're, they're at God's house. They're worshiping God. That's where they've been for the past nine days. And then it says this, suddenly the, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the house. Now we assume, we make an assumption. We conflate things from Acts and say, ah, they were in the upper room. No, it's filling God's house. It's that picture of the presence of God flowing out of the temple and landing on its new, on his new temple. So, um, okay, now, the clues are in the text, but it's high context, right? So when we go to, back to this, this picture, right, or this idea right here, the Bible is an Eastern book. It has Eastern authors. It's written in the East. I'll show you that in a minute. And when Eastern authors or even Eastern speakers would communicate, it's always high context. High context meaning there's information that you assume that everybody has. Luke, that's what Luke assumes. He doesn't stop to explain it. That's why uh, so much of what we do, each one of uh, the lessons I do, I focus so much on the context around it that, that it finally jumps off the page. Oh, that's what they're talking about. Because if you don't know the context around it, you'll abstract it and you might miss something. So I hope that at least helps show you why Eastern scholars would say they're at the, they're at the Temple Mount. There's a whole host of other reasons as well, but just that the text tells us that's where they are. But it leads us into this idea of high context and communication. So Boy, I hope you guys will be the judge of whether I was able to explain that uh, accurately or not. But this gets us to our main topic, culture and communication. Because all communication is cultural. All culture is, is based on the communication. If you're outside that culture, communication can happen and people are kind of left out, right? They don't quite get it. So because we're Westerners, we're Westerners, I begin this idea of culture, as a Westerner does, with a definition. If I was an Easterner, I would tell you a story and then walk away, and you guys would wrestle with the story yourself. But we're not. We're Westerners. So, what's culture? Well, it's, this is a, just a definition that I found uh, on an encyclopedia website. I put a link to it on your handout. Um, it's a complex collection of knowledge, folklore, language, rules, rituals, habits, lifestyles, customs. They link everybody together in a particular group at a particular time. So we have American culture. You have European or Italian culture. You have Israeli culture. Everybody has a culture. Even a married couple has a culture, right? You have customs and lifestyles and attitudes and 
communication styles. Um, but that's what culture is. Now, we don't really notice our culture until we get, begin to point it out, right? So it's really, it's important to kind of go through this. There's one famous quote about culture that has to do with communication. This is from a, a, an anthropologist, Edward Hall. Culture is communication and communication is culture. Because without even knowing it, we're creating culture so that we begin to communicate in ways and that's how we interact as a society. Now, here's where we have to talk about then the West versus the East. And there's a bit of an invisible dividing line, a general divide somewhere around Athens. So if I, if you, the, on the screen, that black line kind of divides the earth. Now it's not perfect, but it, it's somewhere right about Athens is where that dividing line goes down, and it divides the West from the East. And they can be pretty stark divides when it comes to communication. Africa, even though, even though there's much on, in Africa on the West side of that, Africa really communicates in, in a more Eastern way, concrete, um, high context. So it's not perfect, but it's just, it's just an idea. In fact, let me show you. From our, we're all in the West, yes? In fact, you people in California, you can't get, well, I guess go to Hawaii. Hawaii is further west. Eventually, you're back in the east. But you're about as far uh, to the west as you can, you can get. Whenever we talk about regions of the world in the east, we reference them, uh, we talk about the regions based on how, near, how close they are to Greece or to this dividing line. So, for instance, Israel is in the Near East. Uh, scholars talk about the ancient Near East, which is Israel and Syria and Egypt and all of that. What's next as far as the East goes? If we go further East, where do we end up? In the Middle East. Now, a lot of the Middle East is conflated into, you know, Israel gets lumped into that, but the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, um, Kuwait, Iran, if you go far enough, well, where are we? We're in the Far East. So you can see even our language, how we describe the world, is referencing this kind of invisible dividing line. Now, what about us? We are 100% descendants of Greek uh, thinking. The Greek philosophical thinking was passed through Europe and then over into the, uh, in, over into the United States. So we are no doubt uh, Westerners. 100%. In fact, we'll see in a minute, the United States is the lowest context culture in the world. We're the lowest. And that makes sense because we're a bit of a melting pot. We're a very young country. That makes a big difference because we got to know that when we read the Bible. Okay, so what are some differences? This is number three on your handout. Some differences between the East and the West. and. I want to walk through, at least give you some examples of two different areas where we can see the big difference. So first of all, in the West, we like to talk uh, abstractly. I give you a definition. If I wanted to talk about redemption, I could give you a definition of redemption. If you go to the East, they'll tell you a story. So if I want, if you're a Bible writer telling you about redemption, they tell the story of Abraham rescuing Lot. That's redemption. They just did it in a story. 
instead of a definition. So the West is more abstracted. East, you want to make, whenever you're talking about truth or describing something, make it as concrete as possible. So I'll give you one example. This comes from uh, Ray Vanderland, is the first person I ever heard this from, that the world may know ministries. And many years ago, heard him teach on this. And it really just kind of blew my mind because you don't even realize how we talk about God here in the West. But let me give you an example. So it goes like this. If you had the phrase, God is, and then fill in the blank. God is, now you can just shout it out because you're all muted, but God is, and then how do we describe God? Well, in the West versus the East, you often get very different answers. So, for instance, in the West, these are just some of the more common ones. God is holy. That's true. God is love. That's true. God's all-powerful. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is... Those are all true statements, yes? Every one of those is absolutely true. The problem is they're abstract. They don't conjure up a concrete image in your mind. Love. So you have to then figure out what we mean by that. You need a definition. If you go to the East, you get something very different. You say, God is, and they say, a father, or my father. God is a rock, or my rock. Something concrete. You can, uh, you can see it, feel it, hear it, experience it. God is a shepherd, or my shepherd. God is a judge. And what each one of these is, father. Well, everybody in that community then understands, high context, all of the attributes of Father that God reflects. God is a rock. He's uh, stable. He's eternal. Rocks to a human being seem eternal. They're there long before we were born. They'll be here long before we're, we've departed this earth. Uh, God is a shepherd. Everybody's a shepherd in the East, or everyone has no shepherds. So they're using something very concrete. You can't deviate too much from a shepherd. But if you just say omniscient, eh, it's kind of vague. It's abstracted. It's trying to put everything in a concrete rather than abstracted. So the Bible is written to where everything shows up as concrete as possible. They build the tabernacle, and God fills it. They build a, a building, Solomon's temple, and God fills it. Later, right, now we can envision abstractly, oh yeah, I know what that means now, and kind of envision something. But it's always concrete. The East loves concrete. Anyways, okay, you guys get the point, but it's all about the characteristics. And this is going to happen in Exodus. All these little symbols along the way are concrete symbols, and you have to know the symbol, what it meant in that ancient world. Like, God, God writes uh, on the tablets of stone. Well, what is stone? Well, it's, it's eternal, right? So the tablets of stone have a deeper meaning. It's the, God's words are eternal. These are words that will never go away. But it's not, it's not explicitly said like that. It just, they do it using the symbol of, of rock. So 
abstraction and concrete. We're very abstract. We love definitions. Next, and this one's, this gets even better, low context versus high context, right? So we'll talk about this next. And if you flip over your sheet to number four, as I said a minute ago, I'll show you, the United States is the lowest context culture in the world. When we communicate, we use very precise words. The meaning is right on the surface. We don't layer in. You don't have to read between the lines. Everything is, is low context. The high context is exactly the opposite. Now, a good reference for this, and it's footnoted on your sheet, is um, a book called The Culture Map. So Aaron Meyer wrote this book a few years ago. And it, now she wrote it for business, but it's brilliant in helping you understand the differences between um, particularly like in Israel and the Eastern cultures versus the West. And you could see in business how many communication problems they have when they're talking past each other because they don't quite get the other culture. And the same thing happens when we read the Bible. So this is what Aaron Meyer does. They, go, they take these different categories and then they, they graph them out. So for instance, you'll end up with something like this. You have low context on one side, you have high context on the other side. And they say, okay, where do all the countries of the world, or at least the major countries, fall? And of course, as, as I've mentioned, the United States is the lowest of low context. Now, where do you think Israel is? Well, they're in the East, right? So Israel ends up high context. And Israel, you know, has a very unique culture in a region that's surrounded by, you know, people of, of different faiths. So they even, in that, kind of creates the pressure in your culture. It gets more uh, pronounced. Now, you could see immediately, I think, low-context people read a high-context document. That's an ancient document. What do you think happens? Yeah, we get confused. We're not really sure what this is saying. Uh, one professor, uh, John Walton, says, he says, look, when you're translating from Hebrew to English, you not only have to know what the word, Hebrew word means, but you have to know the context, the cultural context around it, or else you'll get the sentence incorrect. So, okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. Low context, that's us. Communication is explicit. It's clear. Everything I'm saying is formulated to carry the message very precisely. Words in, in a low-context culture are very precise. I'll show you that in a second. Well, high context is exact opposite, right? Implicit, there's things in the text. Luke doesn't explain the holiday system. He assumes you know it. It's layered. You can go deep into the, the narrative and find things that are there, even though uh, often uh, our Western mind doesn't see it. And then instead of words being precise, words can be ambiguous. And the ambiguity is the strength. It causes you to have to uh, wrestle with the meaning. And let me show you why that is. So, for instance, in the English language, so let me, let me go back. Languages with high context uh, communication tend to have fewer words so that words are doing double duty. Uh, cultures that have 
low context, like us, have more words. You create words to be very specific, precise about your speech. So in English, there's approximately 174,000 words. Now, that doesn't mean anything yet, but let me show you compared to Hebrew. So 174,000 words. That's, by the way, the most words in the, of all languages in the world. In modern Hebrew, 33,000. Significantly less. So there are a lot of words doing double duty. When you get to ancient Hebrew or biblical Hebrew, 7,000 words. So you can have a word that may have, in English, 20 different words that come out of it. And now we've got to figure out, when you're translating or reading the English, which is the most appropriate one. And the words uh, are often used in the Bible to kind of like stretch the meaning. It makes the meaning a little ambiguous. That's always frustrating for Westerners. Just tell me what the translation is and I'll, you know. It's like, yeah, but that, the translation's a little ambiguous here. How do you translate that? So you can see very few words are doing all the duty. And that's what happens is now words can be ambiguous. The, the listener has to know the context in which this is being explained. So you have explicit versus implicit. You have clear or, 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 I'm sorry, layered speech on the high context, where in low context, you want everything clear right at the top. We have lots of words to be very precise in the, here in the West, but in the East, exact opposite. Okay. The message in low context, that's us, is always at the surface. In high context, you always read between the lines. You search deeper. Both the, the author and the, the listener or reader are going deeper to, because they know that's where it is. In low context, the speaker or the writer is responsible for good communication. It's my responsibility to speak clearly. In Eastern side, both parties are, are considered to have a responsibility. So Jesus, if he gave a sermon, he'd walk up, give you know a two-minute parable, and walk off. And everyone would go, what is he talking about? That's a, as a Westerner, we want you know a 40-minute uh, sermon that has three examples to, to con contextualize it, you know. Uh, that's what we're taught to do, not in the East. And so it's just radically different. And then shared knowledge or subtext in, the, in high context. The assumption is everybody has the shared knowledge. So most Westerners, unfortunately, we read our Bible right at the surface. And so what I want to do as we're entering this book of Exodus, which is a very old book written in the East uh, by Easterners, we have to engage the book at a deeper level to say, what are the, maybe the symbols involved? We got to read between the lines a little bit. We got to look for the shared knowledge, the subtext. And when you do, the, it opens up. It's like just blossoms. You, you find amazing stuff. So, okay. I'm totally skipping my numbers now because I want to get to the end here. The Bible is not only high context, written in the East, but it is also very concrete. So add those two things together. So what you end up getting are concrete symbols. Uh, Mount Sinai. Westerners think, I ah, went up a mountain. 
Easterners go, no, that's a, that's a spiritual journey. You're like, what? Well, because in the East, mountains are always where God lives, right? The Tower of Babel, you build a mountain if you don't have one. So it makes sense that he's going up a mountain, but also the mountain represents a, a journey upward to God. So it's doing double duty. It's a concrete symbol, but it has high context meaning that everybody would understand. The meaning is often carried by the symbol, like the mountain carries meaning not, rather than just a geographical spot, even though there is a geographical spot. And then those meanings the, is layered within the story. So we're going to see this all through the book of Exodus. And um, let me, I'll go through just to finish. This is the, the very last part on your sheet. We'll find things like Pharaoh's heart. Now, we all struggle with this one. But in the Egyptian culture, Pharaoh's heart is everything. And so when we hear about what's going on with Pharaoh's heart, we need to recognize the, uh, the, the cultural stuff that's going around it that's not being said. They don't need to say it. Uh, the Passover lamb. I mean, just even today, talking about how Passover, the, the blood of that lamb delivers you. Well, who's the, who's the other Passover lamb? Jesus. He's God's Passover lamb. For a thousand years, every Passover, they would offer up a lamb. God says, okay, it's my turn. I'm going to offer a lamb. And if you're covered in the blood of my son, you get released from bondage. You're delivered from death. So that Passover lamb is a huge symbol that carries tremendous meaning. Uh, Mount Sinai that I mentioned, it's ascending a spiritual journey. And then I also mentioned this one too, tablets and stone, the eternal word of God, the tabernacle. When we get to the construction of the tabernacle, the literary techniques of how this thing is being is laid out is really remarkable. I remember many years ago, I, was, I would go to these conferences, and there was a fellow there who was trained as a rabbi. And so I would ask him all these questions about differences between Christianity and Judaism. And I said, how do you define salvation? How do you define salvation? That's what I wanted to know. Um, he just looks at me, kind of annoyed, I think, maybe at my simplistic questions, and he says, read the book of Exodus. And I was like, uh-oh. He's like, that's salvation. It's the deliverance. Now, he didn't really go too much in detail, but he goes, and it's always happening. And I was like, what does that mean? Well, it is. There's a there's a constant cycle. You know, we don't just get delivered once and then sit on the couch, you know, and eat nachos and watch Netflix. It's like our life is a constant uh, journey with God, and we're always seeking God's deliverance maybe to the next level. And he's like, that's Exodus. So there's so much more going on in Exodus than we generally um, are aware of, but it's partly because it's high context. Okay. Last little bit, if you're looking for something New Testament, I love this book. Uh, many of you have this book at home, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Ken Bailey lived and worked and ministered in the East, and over and over and over and over, he would come back to the, to the Bible translators and to the seminaries in America and say, we're getting that wrong. There's a, we're missing the context that's, that lies there in the East. So this is a very interesting book. 
if you're interested in learning more about Eastern culture. Okay, just as a quick review, because we're Westerners and you always review when you, as, as a Westerner, culture and communication, big difference between East and West. And we just have to remember, as Westerners, it's our job to go learn the Eastern way, not demand that the Bible speak to us. Ken Bailey, who I just showed you that book, he says all the time, you have to remember that the Bible was written for you, for you. It's for you to read and to understand God's will, but he didn't give it, he wasn't written to you. He wrote it to Israel, which is an Eastern culture, and Israel brings the Bible into the world. So it's brought in, the Bible is 100% an Eastern book. So we look for the concreteness, the concrete symbols. We look for the meaning of the symbols and that high context that's layered underneath, and that will open up the book of Exodus for us. So that's, we didn't even touch the book of Exodus today, but its introduction to help our minds approach the book, I think, in a more accurate way. It's not always easy, but I, like I said, when, it, when you can finally start to see these things blossom out, it's like, oh, that makes more sense, or at least it's, it's got more in there that's readily available for me to use in my own life than I may have been aware of. So, all right, that's Exodus part two. We hope you enjoyed this lesson on culture and communication, and that it helps you understand the vast differences between Eastern and Western cultures. So for many Western Christians, when their eyes are opened to the Eastern context of the Bible, it's as if a whole new world opens up before them. They reread the stories of the Bible, but see new things as it's viewed in a different light. If you found this teaching valuable, we ask that you would consider making a financial donation to Fig Tree Ministries. Our operations rely entirely on generous donations from our supporters. Your financial support directly impacts our ability to continue to expand our reach and help others just like you gain a deeper understanding into the biblical text. And the clearer we understand scripture, the deeper we can go into the text, the more solid the foundations of our faith become. And we've included a link below in the description section that'll take you directly to our donation page. So as you go out into the world this week, may the words of number six be fully present in your life. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom.